Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. I want to thank our sponsors, Drs. Ilan and Juliana Rosenblatt for sponsoring this morning, for Erefua Shlema, for Yisrael Mayor Ben Daphne Bruria, who should have a complete and speedy and painless, please God, Rafua Shlema. Parshas Pekude, with this we end Sefer Shemos, the last Parsha of the second book of the Torah. We don't often get an opportunity to study Parshas Pekude in depth because often it is uh, tagged along, it piggybacks with Vayakel. But this year, due to the leap year, the extra month, we studied Vayakel last week, and this week we'll study Pekude, so we'll have an opportunity to see it a little bit more, a little bit more inside. Parsha begins, page 503 in the Art Scroll Stone, Chumash Eila Pekude HaMishkan, Mishkan HaEidus HaShepukar HaPi Moshe, Avodas HaLaviyim Biyad Isamar Ben Aaron HaKohen. These are the accountants. This, uh, Jews are accountants, Menatora Minayan. From this Pasuk, Eila Pekude HaMishkan. As we complete, as we close Sefer Shemos, we now take a complete accounting. We have a spreadsheet and an audit of all that went in. This was, after all, the very first Jewish fundraiser. They had been soliciting money from all the people, their jewelry, their goods, their items. The project was complete. The capital campaign is over. Everything is built. And it's time to turn in the invoices. It's time to take an accounting. Eile Pekudea Mishkan. This is the accounting of the Mishkan. Rashi says, "The parshas v'nimnu kol Mishkan v'nidvas Mishkan l'kesel zavon l'choshes v'nimnu kol kelav l'chlavodaso." We're going to examine how many materials were given and are they all accounted for, and are they all accounted for? Why are we having this discussion? What was the concern? What was the consideration of where they would have gone? The Medrash Yalkut Shimoni tells us something astounding. We've shared this before. Ela pekuda Mishkan says the. Medrash. So Moshe, nobody's above reproach, nobody's above suspicion. You could be Moshe Rabbeinu. Understand, this is not just their leader. They didn't just give him a 10-year contract. This is the individual who liberated them from the bondage, the burdens, the oppression, the persecution of Mitzrayim. He quite literally, if not directly, but indirectly, he was the ambassador that saved their lives. He led them out of Egypt through the desert. And yet, the Mishkan's complete, and Moshe feels such suspicion. He feels their suspicion. The Medrash describes, Here's my discretionary fund. It's an open book. Here's the QuickBooks, here's the Shul Cloud. What do you want to see? It's all yours. Look, it's all accounted for. It's all accounted for. So, I would have thought, Klai Yisrael would have said, Moshe, we trust you implicitly. We have literally trusted you with our lives. We certainly trust you with our money. You saved us physically. You're beyond reproach. Is that what they say? They say, great, what time is the membership meeting? We'll be there. And put the spreadsheet hand out all the QuickBooks, project it on a screen, we want to see every penny. We want to know what's accounted for. I feel for Moshe. I read this parsha every year. I read Parsha's Pekudei every single year. I understand the Jewish people. I actually love this about the Jewish people. I'm not going to make a commentary on what's going on among Jewish leaders, let's just say 6,000 miles from here in the world. I don't know whether someone's guilty or innocent or indictments are politically motivated or they're true. I don't know, obviously, neither do you, I would suggest. What I do know is that I'm proud to be part of a people that holds our leadership accountable. And as much as I feel for leaders who are suspect, 
I'm also proud to have a people who are so committed to justice that a former prime minister, former president, former chief rabbi, sit, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but sit in, sit in prison. So Moshe is subject to suspicion. And on the one hand, I feel for Moshe. Nebuch. He's given his life. He sacrificed time with his children. He's given his marriage. Moshe gave everything. Mesiris Nefesh. And the least you could have is a little trust in him. Exactly what was he packeting for in the Midbar? He was going to drive a nicer camel than everyone else? What, was, what exactly was Moshe, the suspicion he was siphoning off, what exactly was he doing? What was he doing with that extra money? So, but Moshe is not beyond reproach. They call him in. And if you think Moshe is alone... We're going to read the Megillah soon, in a couple weeks. And we'll read what happens at the very end of the Megillah. Who is the... Esther, of course, is the heroine of the story, the hero of the story. But who is the one who inspires and motivates Esther? Mordechai. And you think Mordechai. Mordechai who Providence had placed him outside the palace so he could turn in big son of the Seresh and, and he guided Esther and he led the people in fasting and praying and he saved the people of Shushan. And how does the Megillah end? This also, I feel a little, he's Ratsoi, Lerov Echav. He didn't get a unanimous vote to be the chief rabbi of Shushan. He just saved Shushan from a holocaust and that's not an exaggeration. Haman is a malik. He was ready to exterminate the Jews. And Mordechai, Mordechai choreographs their salvation. And it's time to vote for him for chief rabbi. Eh, Rovachat, 51%. The other ones, he speaks too long. He's drasha. He doesn't return phone calls in time. He saves your life. Eh, Rovachat. So Mordechai, Moshe, Rovachat, Moshe suspect. So listen to the Medjish. Moshe's sitting and he's doing the accounting. He's doing a, um, an audit. He forgot. He couldn't account for 1,775 shekel. 1,775 shekel that was collected, that was donated. Moshe's doing an audit and he can't figure out where it went. He can't figure out what it was spent on. He knew he collected it, but where did he go? And let's not even imagine Moshe's panic. His anxiety, not because he was worried, he pocketed it. Of course, Moshe, Anav Mikol Adam, Moshe, who was the greatest Jew, the Av Hanavim, Moshe, whom we have an obligation to believe, was categorically different, superior to every Jew who came before or will come after. Moshe's not worried that he actually took some of the money. He just can't remember. And he panics. And the Medjish describes that Hashem opens his eyes and reminds him, reminds him you know where they went? Vavim La'amudim. They went to the Vavim of the Amudim that we'll read about in a moment here in the Parsha. If you turn the page, you'll read about the Vavim of the Amudim on the top of page 532. 1,775, he made hooks for the pillars and he covered their tops and he banded them. The pillars that held up the structure of the Mishkan. Ari Sasher's here. Everyone is invited tonight. You don't want to miss. The rocket man is back in town. The project manager of Iron Dome, brilliant scientist and even more brilliant comedian, most entertaining speaker we've had this year for some reason, not building another rocket. But uh, come tonight, what time is it? Eight o'clock? Yeah. Eight o'clock tonight. You don't want to miss. Come early and get a seat. Friends of BRS, get a better seat. But come early and get a seat. 
You don't want to miss the, the rocket man. So the Pasuk itself describes 1,775 shekel. Why did Moshe forget about them? Hashem has to come and open his eyes so he can remember them. All right, can relate to this board. Why did Moshe forget about them? Why did Moshe forget about them? Did he not remember the hooks of all the materials to forget? Why is it specifically the hooks? Why is it specifically the hooks? Ramosha Sternbach suggests that Moshe was aware the hooks were used in the Mishkan. He simply neglected to count them and he dismissed their significance because why? A hook is the most insignificant, a little screw, a little hook. It's nothing. A little tape, a little glue. It's, it's negligible. It costs nothing. It's not something significant. And so he didn't account for it. He didn't remember it. However, however, the Vav is so much more than that. The Vav is more than just a hook. And by the way, that's the Rav's insight. If you look in the Rav's Chumash, Yo-Yo Rav Chumash, the Rav says, that's why Moshe forgot the Vavim, and Hashem reminded him, and there's an enormous, enormous lesson for us. Because sometimes you could forget the little things. The cap on the toothpaste, did you leave the toilet seat up or down, did you take out the garbage? The things that marriage are made or broken over. <laughs> Marriages are not made or broken over the quality of the dozen roses on the anniversary, or the chocolates, or how, how articulate the anniversary card was. Nobody ever said, my husband is great, takes out the garbage, and he remembers with the cap on the toothpaste, he does everything I asked, but there were 11 roses, not 12. <laughs> I want to get. Nobody's ever said that. But people say, I get, of course I get flowers, I get chocolates, I get eloquent cards, but, but the little things, the socks, not next to the hamper, in the hamper. Does it take so much more work to put it in the hamper than next to the hamper? I'm just telling you things that I've heard in my office from other people. <laughs> so, the little hooks, the socks in the hamper is a little hook. It's negligible. Right? Nobody on their shidduch resume says, it's University of Sheftashir and committed to put the socks in the hamper. <laughs> it's not on the shidduch resume. I pledge, I'm committed, historically, for the first 22 years of my life, socks always make it in the hamper, that's on top of my shidduch resume. That's not on top of the shidduch resume, but it is the, it is the bread and butter of what makes or breaks a relationship. So the Rav says that's what Moshe had forgotten, or we sometimes take for granted and neglect are the little things that just like true in our human relationships, so too is true in our relationship with Hashem. The minutiae, the details, that which seems negligible, that which seems unimportant, is the bread and butter, it's the foundation, it's the cornerstone of our relationships. And the Rav quotes Gemara Bechoros on Dafhei, conversation between a non-Jewish officer and Rabbi Yochanan Medzaka. And the non-Jewish officer argues, Moshe was not precise in his accounting. If each of the 603,550 Israelites gave a half shekel of silver, there would be over 200 kikarim of silver. But Moshe used less than half, 100 kikarim, to make the silver sockets for the Mishkan. So Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai answered, Moshe used the remainder to make the hooks. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai defends Moshe and says, no, 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 your accounting is off, because the remainder he did use, he used for the hooks. And the Rav explains, the non-Jewish world does not understand why we're so concerned with details. Why do we not have a system which would free us from having to keep mitzvahs that are difficult to observe under specific circumstances? Why is there any significance to the tiny hooks? Why should they be accounted for? Orthodox Jews, he writes, are vilified for being pedantic, concentrating too much on small details, losing sight of the important principles. I once approached a, colleague, a college president on behalf of an Orthodox student who needed to have an exam rescheduled so he'd not have to violate Shabbos or Yontif. The president asked why I could not grant the student a one-time dispensation, wondering why should we invest so much time and effort on halachic minutia? 
Chazal indicate that Moshe himself initially lost track of the hooks until Hashem opened his eyes. Moshe realized that without the hooks, the sockets could not structurally bear the weight of the Mishkan. Without the small details, the fundamental principles would have lost, would have long since disappeared. Ari, without the screws and the hooks, how would Iron Dome function? How, how would it work? You could have the most brilliant idea. You could launch a rocket, the trajectory, and anticipate it, meet it in midair. If you leave out, you ever, you ever, I have to take a flight later today. If you ever see it near the wing, you see those little screws. Instead, if one screw is loose, one of those little screws in the wing that you're not supposed to step on in case you had a havam, you know, to step on the wing. But one of those little screws were loose. Aye, that's what's important. The wings and the cockpit and the pilot and the engine and the compass and the, and the lift and the however else planes work. One little screw. If one little screw is missing, the whole plane goes down. The foundation that holds everything up are the minutiae, are the details. It's true in relationship and it's true in our observant life. Tragically, we've seen that those who begin to negotiate or be flexible and those who begin to omit the little minutia, the little screws, the little details, the little hooks in halachic life, it's a very quick, slippery slope towards the whole building imploding and collapsing. And those who are not obsessive-compulsive, that's not, we don't want to create anxiety, we don't want to become debilitated by the hooks and the screws, they're there to enhance and enrich our lives, not destroy them or deplete them, but those who have been careful and vigilant and concerned with the details, the minutiae, like we, the offspring of Rav Yochanan and Zakkai, who are continuing the legacy, even a Moshe could forget. Even a Moshe could wonder, why does it really matter? To say the bracha, I have to put my tefillin on exactly right there. The tefillin, the, the esrog can't have a little blemish, a little black spot. I can't have a... Yeah, the details matter in all relationships and in our relationship with Hashem. So that's, that's the answer that Rabbi Soloveitchik gives, what Moshe had forgotten about the vavim and what Hashem reminded him by opening his eyes. But there's another interpretation I want to share with you. And that is that there's another value to the hooks. How do you say a hook in Hebrew? What were these called? The vavim. Vave ha'amudim. Rav Zilberstein puts out, uh, he puts out a sefer a day, but he puts out a sefer like every other month. It's called Vave ha'amudim. On that month. It's on the month. Parshios and Samarimush. Vave ha'amudim. A vav is a hook. It's not coincidental that the word for hook is vav. Because the letter vav... What is the purpose? What is the goal? What does the letter Vav serve? In Hebrew grammar, you'll call it a Vav Ha Chibur. The Vav serves as a hook. The letter Vav stands for the ability to unite and to bridge and to bond two things. The Vav Ha Chibur joins words to create sentences and to express ideas. And Moshe had taken for granted the importance of unity, of being together. If all the ingredients are present, who cares how they're connected? They all just need to be here. And he had not forgotten, but taken for granted the importance of not only having all the material and all the ingredients and all the utensils present, but also having them interconnected, having the vavim, having the hooks that brings it all together and that makes it work together to be bound together, to not fall apart. The principle of achtas, of unity and wholeness, we take for granted. It's so basic, but it's axiomatic to our faith and it's so critical to our experience and like Moshe, we can't run the risk of taking the vav and the small hooks that bind us together for granted. We have to create or appreciate or value and account for the vav hachibor in our lives, that which unites us and that which bonds us. Rabbi J.J. Schachter points out an extension of this idea. Literature students are familiar with the idea of the mark of Cain, an idea that has been used as a doctrine and an attitude. Someone who bears the mark of Cain is cursed, is marginalized. Where does that phrase come from, the mark of Cain? In the fourth parak of Bereshis, Cain has a conflict with his brother Hevel. We all know the story. He kills 
his brother Hevel. And Hashem says, Vayomer lo Hashem, lachin kohori kain shivasayim yukam, vayasim Hashem lakayim, os, levilti hikosa somotso. God places a sign on Kayin's forehead. He would bear it forever, and everywhere he went, this tattoo, this sign on his forehead, would announce the terrible mistake, the error of his ways. What was it a tattoo of? The Pasuk just tells us there's an os, there's a sign, there's a symbol, there's an icon on his forehead. What was it of? What was it shaped as? Medrash Rab and the Zohar both tell us what was on Kain's forehead? The letter? Vav. The letter Vav. What kind of symbol is the letter Vav? That's what he was up to in the Aleph days? What, what, why the letter Vav? So Rav Meir Shapir, the founder of the Dafyomi, explains Kain's mistake was being selfish and egocentric. He was concerned with whether his sacrifice was accepted. And he was so concerned with advancing himself, he was willing to murder his own brother. And Hashem's response is that when you neglect and murder your brother in the pursuit of your own honor and ego and sense of self, you have to bear the mark of Vav. You have to be reminded of the Vav HaChibor, of the obligation that you're not isolated alone, that you're not living independently, but the Vav HaChibor. Vit. You're always living. Vit. You and? You and your family. You and your neighbor. You and your community. You and Hashem. It's always you, the you and. Shachanach quotes in Yerdea, in the laws of writing a Sefer Torah, a practice. There is a custom, some have, not all Sefer Torah are write, written this way, that every column begins with the letter Vav. And that kind of Torah is called a Torah of a Vaveha Emudim, where the Vav is on the beginning of the column, just like the Vav held up the columns of the Mishkan, and just like the Vav, the, the Vav HaChibor, that notion of being interconnected, the notion of, of having a relationship, is what holds us up. So all that is number one. Eila Pekudah Mishkan, there's this accounting. Moshe panics, he forgot 1,775 shekel. Where did it go? What did he spend it on? What happened with it? Hashem opens his eyes, he's reminded of the hooks. And we saw the interpretation of Moshe Sternbach, the Rav. Maybe what Moshe forgot are the negligible, what seems minutia, insignificant. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai told that non-Jewish Roman officer that don't dismiss what seems so small. Relationships are made, they're built, they're founded, and they're supported by the small things. If a screw is missing, the whole building, the whole bridge, the whole airplane could collapse or implode. And the second idea of Meir Shapiro, the Vav of Kayan, the Vav Achibor, the notion of being together, Moshe had forgotten, he took it for granted. If everything's present, who cares how it's connected? The answer is we care desperately how it's connected. There's an anomaly in this first Pasuk. We're going to get past it, I promise. I promise we'll try to get past this first Pasuk. Eila pekudeh ha-mishkan, mishkan ha-edus. Which word is extra redundant in that opening Pasuk? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know. What word is extra? Mishkan. Eila pekudeh ha-mishkan, mishkan. If you submitted that as a paper, you'd get it back with a red mark. Eila pekudeh ha-mishkan, mishkan ha-edus. Why is the word mishkan repeated right away over here. So, look at Rashi. Hamishkan, Mishkan. If you're bothered, you could pretty much rest assured that Rashi was also bothered. Shnei Pa'amim. It says Mishkan twice. It's a remez l'mikdash nismashchein b'shnei churbanen al avonoseim she'yisrael. This is a hint to the two batei mikdash that were destined to be built but would also be destined to be destroyed from the Jewish people. Mishkan, Mishkan. Remez l'mikdash. The two destructions. The two destructions. The redundancy of Mishkan. The Maharal. Maharal Rabbi Hudaloi of Prague has what we call a super commentary on Rashi. It's called that because the commentary is super. 
but also when you have a commentary on a commentary, the fancy way of saying it is a super commentary. So Rashi says, so the Maharal is bothered, okay, two Batei Mikdash would be built. Okay, two Batei Mikdash are going to be destroyed. But why here? Why are we being reminded of that right now? Why is this the place? What in the world do the two calamities of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash have to do with Pekudeh HaMishkan? It's so typically Jewish. We're celebrating success. We're talking about marveling how we actually had a successful capital campaign. We raised the money. We built everything. Someone has to raise their hand. Yeah, but it's going to get destroyed. We're going to fight. It's going to implode. It's going to be terrible. And might as well be miserable about it right now. It's so classically Jewish. Why? Can't we just bask in the glory of our success for a minute? Right away, we already have to anticipate how it's all going to go wrong. Our anxiety has to kick in. So the Maharal answers by quoting the Medjush Tanchuma. The Medjush Tanchuma on our Pasuk says, Why were the first set of luchos shattered and destroyed and the second set lasted? What was the difference between the first set and the second set? And the Medrash answers, Because the first set of luchos were given in public. Pomp and circumstance and tremendous attention. There was a sound and, and light show. And the whole world was watching. The spotlight was on. It was the most public stage. And Moshe descends with the luchos. And why were the first luchos? They were vulnerable. They were broken. They didn't last. While the second set did. Because the fundamental difference between the two is... That which is done in public with a spotlight and, atten- and attention, it draws all the negative energy, what we call the Ayin Hara. And because of the Ayin Hara, Bepumbi, it was in public and attracted the Ayin Hara, the first set of luchos were broken. Second set of luchos were given Pitsina quietly, privately, humbly, modestly. And therefore, they are, they're lasting, they're lasting. So what does that mean? Like, why didn't Moshe just tie a red string around the first set of luchos? And they would have been protected from everybody watching and all the attention. Why, why, why the difference between the first set and the second set? And what does that have to do with Pekudeh and Mishkan? So the first set didn't last, it was public. The second set were given quietly, modestly, and that, and that worked. Says the Maharal, Eila Pekudeh and Mishkan, the moment we publicly celebrate the success of a campaign, we made the Mishkan, the Besamekdash, vulnerable to Ayin Hara. And that's also why they destroyed True, Eila Pekudeh Mishkan. I mean, it's hard to understand the Maharal because it seems like the Torah Hashem himself was endorsing this public celebration. But even when you have success and you're celebrating it, do it cautiously. Do it carefully. Do it with modesty. Do it in a way that you're trying to be protected from Ayin Hara. And because there was this public display, this enormous groundbreaking ceremony, this great excitement about the inauguration, they were moving into the Mishkan, hey, look, who the capital campaign is done, it's complete, we're moving in, and it drew such attention, says the Maharal, that's why Mishkan, Mishkan. Be careful. Whenever you do something enormously in public, be careful. Be very careful, because it could draw a lot of, a lot of negative attention, it can draw a lot of Ayin Hara. What does that mean, Ayin Hara? What does it mean, Ayin Hara? What does it mean when something's in public, it's vulnerable, when you do it privately, you're more well protected? So many of us who are rationalists, we dismiss. In fact, we're very turned off by the idea of Ayin Hara. Right? If you step over a person, and if you pour it backwards into the mirror, and if you... All the Baba Maisas, I mean, the things that your Bubby told you, all those things, for many, we're, we're turned off by it. We're, we're so bothered by it. The rationalist wants to reject. So I'll tell you something incredible. I don't care how Maimonidean, what kind of rationalist you are in here, 
Everyone here subscribes to Ayanara and its impact. It's codified in Shulchan Arach. When you had to fill out that honor sheet at your son or your grandson's bar mitzvah, you observe the laws of Ayanara. Because the Shulchan Arach and Arachayim Simon Kuf, Nun, Kuf Mem says, Yichon likroshne achim ze'achar ze'ah, ve'aben achar ha'ah, ve'ein manichin ele b'shvil Ayanara. In truth, there's no reason that a father or son or two brothers can't get back-to-back aliyahs. And yet, Shulchan Aruch says, records, and we all follow. Every Gabbai knows this. This is Gabbai 101. You don't give two brothers or a father and son aliyahs back-to-back. Now, did you ever stop to wonder why? You're filling out that aliyah sheet. You're calculating for the bar mitzvah, especially if you got Kohen. We had a bar mitzvah last year, two years ago. We had triplet Kohen and boys. I'm trying to figure out the bar mitzvah. Father or grandfather, triplet Kohen and boys... It's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. So why can't you give back to back? Why can't you give father son? Sheikh Nach says, you know the whole reason we're not doing that? It's because of Ayan Hara. Because all the other miserable people who claim they never get an aliyah, they're bitter enough they don't get an aliyah, say back to back, two brothers? I haven't had an aliyah in 2,700 years. And back, I know the day, October 17th, 1902, was my last aliyah. And I'm a member in good standing. So, and two brothers are getting Aliyahs back to back? So the Ayin Hara on those two brothers. So universally, we all, I don't care, you can have a shul named after the Rambam. It could be the B'nai rationalists. And they're all still observing this universal practice of two brothers don't get Aliyahs back to back. So we're all following it. It's a Gemara, Baba Basra, you're not supposed to look in your neighbor's field if you're watching their crop. It's growing more accelerated than your crop. You're going to cast a spell. You're going to look with the Ayanhara and it's going to have an impact. So you could be the greatest rationalist, but the term Ayanhara is used in, in the Gemara, it's codified in the Shulchan Arach, and so on. What is this notion? What is the Ma'ara referring to? So very, very briefly, because I want to get back to the parasha. But Ayanhara is not a Kabbalistic, at least to me, it's not a Kabbalistic or a mystical or an irrational concept. It's not something that a red string could protect you from or the right donation to a Kabbalist or a Kablan could protect you from. So what is Ayin Hara and how are we protected from it? The Maral explains very beautifully. The Maral says that that curiosity, that wonder, the attention that you've drawn from others who observe your good fortune is a type of prayer, whether intended or unintended, explicit or implicit, from that other person. Here's how it goes. I'm coasting through life under the radar from Hashem and a person has certain success. So now you want to Boast that success. So Hashem is letting you slide by under the radar. The truth is, if you took a closer look at you and examined your father, you might not be exactly worthy of having that. Of having that nachas from your, from your child, or, or celebrating that major milestone, or having uh, accumulated that, amassed that wealth, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you're slipping under the radar. You haven't drawn Hashem's attention to really evaluate you. But when you show it off ostentatiously, when you boast, when you insensitively flaunt it in people's faces, and they say, oh, look who keeps showing me a million pictures of the grand, tell me how grand they got into every Ivy League, how everything's so perfect. Look who is doing all these public, ostentatious, boasting things. Hashem, why do they deserve that? And I don't. I finish Tehillim every day, and they, it takes them a whole month. I give all the stuff, and they barely give any. I volunteer in the Hever Kaddisha, they care only about themselves. Hashem, why do they have so much success and I don't? Says the Maral, the notion of Ayin Hara is not that I can cast some heebie-jeebie spell by looking at you with jealousy. It's that my jealousy directed above takes on a form of a prayer to God. Hey God, grab their file. Essentially, look at their file. They really deserve this? 
They keep throwing it in our face. It's really coming to them? Take a closer look. Okay, now Hashem can't help but his attention's been drawn. Now that there's a challenge, Hashem grabs the file. It says the Maharal, he takes a closer look. So when a person welcomes or invites Ayin Hara and suffers the consequence, by boasting, by flaunting, by being ostentatious, by being insensitive and throwing it in other people's faces, they've welcomed Hashem to examine more closely whether in fact they deserve it. And if they don't, they're now vulnerable to losing it. So you can't flaunt it in people's faces and hurt them and have them invoke Hashem's judgment, but then you're going to hold up the red string. Red string, I'm good. Protected. Put my file away, Hashem. My file doesn't matter. What I'm doing doesn't matter. I'm honest. I lie. I gossip. Put it away. File is, I got the red string. I'm good to go. The red string is meaningless. The Tosefta Mesechus Brachos says that a person who wears a red string, it uses that language, as midarchei ha'emori. It's idolatry and paganism. It has absolutely no place in our tradition or religion. It can't protect you from anything. It does nothing for you. Nothing. You know who it's a school for? The guy on the way down to the Kotel, who, if you give him enough shekel, it's a school for the woman at Kevarachal who the red string is wound around over and over. For them, it's a great school. It's tremendous. For you, it does nothing. You know what the biggest school is? Whatever bracha you have in your life, enjoy it. You could have a big house and a beautiful car. You can enjoy fine things. But enjoy it for yourself and use it to benefit others, not to flaunt and not to make them feel insecure or inferior and not to throw it in their face or to flaunt. Be proud of your brachas, be grateful for them, use them to help and to lift the people around you, not to make them feel less. When you do, if Hashem were to grab your file, He'd say, I'm so glad I gave them that thing. Look what they're doing with it. Look at the impact they're having with it. But if you don't, if you only use it to flaunt, the Kosh Baruch says, whoa, 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 give me the file, I'm not so sure. So Kosh Baruch Hu, the Pasuk is reminding us of all this whole system. Mara, Rav Desla writes this in Mechtav Melio. There's a lot more to say. We once gave, I think, a three-part share on, on uh, Ayin Hara. Now is not the time. But Mishkan, Mishkan, the Mara is explaining Rashi. Why Mishkan, Mishkan? As much as you're celebrating, no, both these buildings are going to be destroyed. Rashi, the Mara says, thanks Rashi. Now? We're having a high. Why do you have to tell us that right now and bring us back down to earth? And the Maral says, you know why? Because lest you think Mishka, Mishka, everything's fantastic, amazing. You're celebrating perfect. No, no. That the more public and the more flaunt and the more ostentatious, the more vulnerable. And the greater risk that you could lose it all. And this is a reminder of, a reminder of the obligation. Ayin Hara, well, so when we bring an Ayin Hara on ourselves, we literally bring the Ayin Hara on ourselves. And the Ayin Hara is not some Kabbalistic mystic ability. It's we want to stop people from, we want people to have the opposite prayer. Hashem, I love that you gave my neighbor that amazing thing because it's done great things for the neighbor and for me and for the community. Give them more great things. That's an Ayin Tov. Ayin Tov is when you see what someone else has and you say, wow, they really deserve it. They're doing wonderful things with it. I want it too, but I'm so glad they have it. Ayin Hara is, why'd you give that to them? They don't deserve it. I deserve it more. And Hashem can't help but have to respond in those circumstances. Okay, I promise we'd get past the first Pasuk. So let's give the overview of the Parsha, and then I want to get into another introduction, and then uh, a few quick points. And then I got a flight to catch. Okay, so the Parsha, if, if Vayakel repeated Shuma, then Pekude repeats Tetzava. Tetzava was all about the big day Kahuna, and Pekude is recounting the materials used for the work, and again, the role of Betzalel, 
and his colleagues and the different ingredients and materials that were used in the Big Day Kahuna. And the Big Day Kahuna, last week we spoke about why this is all repeated again, why it's redundant, why do we need it a second time. So we go through all these different... Uh, Moshe and Betal will have a debate. Do you build the house and then get the furniture? Do you get the furniture and then the house? What exactly they were debating? We've discussed that in the past as well. We have a command to set up and the, uh, the Mishkan, and Moshe goes through a dry run of the Mishkan, sort of bizarre dry run of the Mishkan, for seven days, according to one opinion, twice a day, according to another opinion, three times a day. Moshe assembles and disassembles the Mishkan. It's kind of the definition of insanity. He builds, and I mean, if you've ever gotten something from Ikea, building it once is the definition of insanity. Building it, taking it apart, and building it several times a day will put you in the loony bin. So why is, why is the Torah mandating that Moshe goes to this dry run of the Mishkan, he takes it apart and he puts it together two or even three times a day, what is the idea or the symbolism of, of putting it together, taking it apart, putting it together, taking it apart, putting it together, taking it apart? And to me, and, and several, uh, I think the Salonim Rebbe says this and others, it's a very powerful image for those who are watching Moshe. That is, they get ready for this edifice, the most holy, sacred edifice that will ever exist, that houses the divine presence, to know that it too will break apart. Anticipate and be ready for that fact that even the things that are holy and that are whole ultimately can break and we can rebuild. We don't live a linear life where everything is smooth sailing and we build something and we have it forever. We accumulate something. We have our health forever. But life is made up of ups and downs. We hope like the stock market, it trends up. But no, to begin with, it's going to have ups and downs. And Moshe puts it together and breaks it apart several times a day to remind us that things will break apart. Things will break apart. Some suggest we break a glass under the chuppah. I was at this wedding last night. The chassan steps on the glass, breaks the glass. Whenever I'm a Sadiqadushan, I make the same corny joke and I get the same corny laugh. Why is the chassan breaking the glass? Because it's the last time he's going to put his foot down. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. I'll be here next Tuesday as well. Thank you very much. So, why does the chassan put his foot down? So, but what, why does he break the glass? Why does he break the glass? So we all know, we're thinking about, but it's more than just that. We're breaking the glass to know that as you set out on this life, right now, tonight, you're perfect, everything's perfect, everything's amazing. Thanks to the makeup person, and thanks to the uh, hair person, and thanks to the lighting, and thanks to the band, and the photographer, and most of all, thanks to your parents. Everything, you're perfect. Everybody's saying you're perfect, the next seven days, all they talk about is you're the God's greatest gift to this world. Everything is perfect. You're in love, everything's perfect. So you know what? Break a glass. Something's going to break. Start getting used to it right now before you even leave the chuppah. Before you even walk out from the chuppah, no things are going to break. Things are going to break around you. We have a fourth matzah at the Seder. There's a custom some have. It's called the matzah suffolk. It's brought down going back centuries. That some had a fourth matzah. We all know the number three, Avni Tzvik and Yaakov, and all the different illusions, Kohen Levi Yisrael. But many had the custom to bring a fourth matzah. And perhaps the reason they had the fourth matzah, the matzah suffolk was, when you sit down to the Seder, you really need three. So why do I have a fourth? Because when I sit down to the Seder, I know someone's going to spill the grape juice. Someone's going to break a matzah. Someone's going to break one of the dishes that your great-grandmother rescued from the Holocaust. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, so be ready. When you sit down to the Seder, everything's white, and I'm wearing the kittel, and the finest crystal, and the silver, and the great-great-great-grandchildren, and everything's amazing, it's going to be perfect, and the greatest night. And you haven't even finished singing Kadesh Urchatz. These two are fighting, and this one spilled, and she fell asleep on the couch, and this one's... 
So no, before you even start to say to the matzah suffix, the fourth suffix, it's going to break. It's going to break. So Moshe builds and takes apart, builds and takes apart, because even the holiest place on earth, things will break. Things will break, they're going to be broken. There's a medrash that tells us that before HaKadosh Baruch who created the world that we have, it's a medrash in Parshish Precious, he was bona olamas v'acharivan. He built worlds and he destroyed them. Salvechik has a very famous insight. What does it mean? God built worlds and then he and then he destroyed them. What exactly was the point of that? First of all, God's omnipotent, omniscient, he's perfect, he's infinite. He couldn't have got it right the first time. So the answer is he was creating a precedent and he was a model for us that if the Ribona Shalom had to try several times before he got it right, things will break. Things will be destroyed. And you know what we do when that happens? We assemble them all over again. We take it up. People's economic lives collapse, implode, and you have to start again. People have a health compromise. You got to go to option B. People experience a loss. And when something becomes disassembled in our lives, we have to stop and figure out how we're going to assemble it again. Our life is made up with those chapters, those up and downs, assembling and disassembling. I think I wrote an article in this past week's about that. Failure and bouncing back. Who created the light bulb? Edison? So he said, the journalist asked him, apparently he had tried a thousand times to do it. He said, how did it feel to try and fail a thousand times? And he said, what do you mean? I tried and succeeded once. It just had a thousand steps. So it's a whole different view of failures. Do failures contribute to mold and shape who we are? Or did it take many steps until we got there? Maybe that's the idea. Moshe, in front of everyone, is assembling and disassembling, building, destroying, building, destroying, building, destroying, because he's reminding us that in life, all these different components and areas of our life are built and destroyed, built and destroyed. Okay, that is the parsha. Then the end of the parsha, Moshe is uh, coming to enter. The cloud is covering the Oamoid, and the glory of Hashem fills the Mishkan. Basically, everything's built, it's move-in day. We're about to move in. Moshe couldn't enter because it was protected by this cloud and the glory of Hashem filled only when it lifted. When the cloud lifted, that's when the Jewish people traveled on all of their, on all of their journeys. It's interesting. Rashi here quotes, What do you mean, Bechol Masa Ehem? Bechol Masa Sheyunosim Haya Anan Shochim Bemakam Asher Yachanusham. Every time they journeyed, they traveled, so the cloud would lift. Makam Chaniyasan Afu Karei Masa. Rashi says this kind of bizarre comment. The place where they encamped, where they stopped, that was also called their journey. Huh? A journey is in between where you stop. How could you call where you stop also a journey? It's kind of strange. So we know we'll read in Parshas Masay, how many times did they journey? Torah tells us how many times they traveled. How many? Forty. Everyone's mumbling, they're hedging. Forty. It's well done. So the Baal Shem Tov has a tradition that just like the Jewish people traveled and their lives were made up of chapters, so too every single individual, our life is made up of different chapters. And we too have journeys. We don't, again, the linear way. Like It's not that when we're born, I'm three years old and I say at three years old, I want a wife who looks like this and then I'm going to have this career and I'm going to get a house with a white picket fence and I'm going to live in this community and I'm going to have this number of children and then I'm going to grow old and I'm going to die asleep in my bed at home. The end. We don't get to when we're three years old just project our whole life out. 
and our whole life is one chapter, our life is made of different chapters and we never know what the next chapter is going to bring. And just like the Jewish people traveled and they did so with divine protection, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, so too, when we are committed, this is the Slam Rebbe's insight on our parsha. we give a share on Sunday, Slam Rebbe says that so too, when we are committed to Veshachanti Besocham, when we become a traveling Mishkan, when Hashem is able to dwell through us, when Hashem finds expression in the world through us, then we merit His protection of the cloud and the pillar of fire, and we too, on those journeys and through those chapters of our life, have Him guiding us. Have Him guiding us. So, Slam Rebbe was bothered. Why does Rashi describe Makam Chaniyasan, even the place of their dwelling, when they stop, that too is called the journey. And I think the Islam Rebbe's message is very powerful. The answer is the journey is not in between when we know we have. Even when we think that we've arrived and we're fixed and we're settled, that too is a journey. That too is part of our journey. That too is called Masa'ehim. Okay, that's the end of the parsha. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back. So, we're completing Sefer Shemos. We're completing Sefer Shemos. And the Ramban in his introduction, let's go back not just to the beginning of Pekudu, let's go back to the beginning of Sefer Shemos. The Ramban in his introduction to Sefer Shemos tells us, Sefer Shemos, the book of Exodus, is the story of the transition from Galos to Geula. This is the journey from exile to redemption. The journey from exile to redemption. And on the surface, that sounds lovely. We started it out, we were in Egypt, and we ended with Geula. There's only one problem. How do you define Geula? We normally define redemption when we are longing for the redemption still today from beautiful Boca Raton, Florida. What, was, what is it that we're longing for when we describe redemption? We want the third base Amitash to either descend from the heavens or for us to build it. We're waiting for Mashiach and we're waiting for the third base Amitash and we're waiting to be in Israel, to be carried on the wings of eagles. So what does it mean that in the book of Shmos, they went from Galus to Geula. Where are they at the end of the book of Shmos? I would think, you know, the journey from Galus to Geula goes from the beginning of Shmos to Sefer Yoshua. From being in Egypt to a long adolescence and maturing and growing in 40 years. And finally, we're entering the land of the book of Yoshua. That's Geula. And yet the Ramban says that by the end of the book of Shmos, we're in Geula. So by the end of Parshish Pekude, what we just read, those last sentences, we put the furniture in, we practiced, we had our dry run, we had our rehearsals, we built it, we assembled, disassembled, we're ready to rock and roll, we're ready for the Mishkan to be operational, we're ready to press go. That's Geula. So Rav Shechter, Mori Barabi Rav Shechter, I've heard him say it many times, and it's in his new Sefer, Rav Shechter on the Parsha, Rav Shechter explains that you see from this Ramban that the definition of Geula is not geographic. The definition of Geula is not Eretz Yisrael or Yerushalayim, nor is it physical. It's having a base on Mikdash. Certainly there's an element, I'm a religious Zionist just like you, certainly there's an element of Israel being a part of Geula. It's undeniable. But it is not the sum total of Geula. What's evidence of that, by the way? When the Medrash says on Bereshis, that when it describes the four Golios, that we had four exiles, one of the exiles was the Golos of Yavan. Where did Golos Yavan take place? Not in Teaneck or Muncie or LA or Detroit or Chicago or Boca Raton. Where was Gullus Yavan? It was in Modi'in. It was in Eretz Israel. It was Yerushalayim. Syrian Greeks took over the Beis Amikdash. The story of Hanukkah. The story of Hanukkah happened in Israel and that Chazal called Gullus. What do you mean? I was living in Israel. How could that be Gullus? The answer is just like right now, 
maybe it's Aschalta de Geula, a separate topic, is it the beginning of redemption? It certainly feels like it is the beginning of redemption, but it's not the complete redemption. Even those living in Israel, even those living in the old city of Yerushalayim, it's not yet redemption. Why? Because the Ramban says real redemption is Hashra'as Hashchina. When the Mishkan is complete and it's rendered operational, and Hashem finds a dira betachtonim, Hashem comes to dwell down here on earth, and His presence is felt, that's the definition of redemption. It's a new definition and understanding of what exile and redemption are. Exile is a lack of God in your life. Exile is feeling alone, abandoned, on your own, independent. Exile is in the darkness of solitude, of searching, of thinking life is randomness and chance and coincidence. That's exile. And what's redemption? Redemption is to knowing that Hashem is orchestrating all, that He is the arbiter not only of the universe and not only of our people, but each of us individually. Redemption is inviting Hashem into our lives. Redemption is feeling His presence. If Sefer Shmos represents the transition from Golis to Gula, exile to redemption, it means at the beginning we were in the 49th level of Tummah. We were struggling to get by, to feel, to see Hashem's presence. And by the end of Sefer Shmos, Hashras Hashchina, Mishkan, operational, up and running, we feel Hashem. And Rav Shekta suggests, that's why we say the Gemara in Rashan Yeral famously tells us, Benisan Nigalu, Benisan Asidan Ligal. In Nisan we were redeemed, and in Nisan we'll be redeemed again. So usually we think what that means is the story of the exodus from Egypt happened in, in, in uh, Nisan and the story of the exodus from Boko will happen in Nisan. But says Rav Shechter, that's not the Nisan Nigalu that the Chazal were referring to. You know what else happened in the month of Nisan? Hakamasa Mishkan. The Mishkan was inaugurated. The Mishkan was dedicated in Nisan. That's the Nisan Nigalu. We found and felt Hashem's presence in our life once in Nisan we will find and feel His presence in our life again in Nisan. It's not the geographic exile redemption, it's the spiritual one. It's the spiritual one. That's what the Ramban was referring to as introduction, and says of Shechter, that's what Chazal were referring to when they talk about Benisan Nigalu, Benisan Nisidin Nigal. So I've shared that before with you in the past, but I want to share something new with you right now. I know none of you remembered it, which is why I repeat things every week and every year. Baruch Hashem for that. So... But I want to tell you something new. The Chidusha Arim is bothered, the Ger Reb is bothered, like many. Four Pashas, Trumat, Tachab, Vayaka, Pakudeh, so elaborate and redundant. And how is it relevant to us? How do I connect to it? Dimensions, measurements, ingredients, materials, something I never saw. Please God, we will one day see. But how is it relevant? How does it speak to us? And of course, we've been developing the Nefesh HaChaim. You and people are the Nimshel. All of this is a metaphor for us, inside us, is an Aaron, a Kodesh Kadashim, a Menorah, the Ulam, the Heichal. Everything we're reading and learning about is a description of how we, in our, excuse me, in our lives and in our homes, how we can be a vehicle of holiness and sanctity. It's all about us. So where do you see that here? So check out this incredible Chidusha Arim. It's based on the Balaturim. The Balaturim is Perak Lam Ches Pasuk Chav Torah tells us, "Vayi maas kikar kesef latzekes is adnei hakodesh v'adnei adparoches maas adanim lemaas hakikar kikar la adem." Perak lamerches pasuk chavzayin. Torah tells us, "The hundred talents of silver were cast to the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the partition. A hundred sockets for a hundred talents, a talent per socket. The adanim were the sockets, and the 
pillar fit into the socket and it held up the structure and it supported the whole edifice of the Mishkan. How many sockets were there? How many sockets were there that the pieces fit into to hold everything up? It's not a trick question. We just read it. Pasuk said, a hundred. There were a hundred. A hundred kikar kasef were used for the sockets. Why? A hundred sockets for a hundred talents comes out to a talent per socket. There were a hundred sockets. There were a hundred sockets. Look at the Balaturim. Rav Yaakov ben Asher, the Russia's son, says the Balaturim on Pasach of Zion, Me'as Adanim. There were a hundred Adanim. Kineged miyusadim al adne paz. Uchenegdam tiknu mea brachos bechol yom. What are the sockets, the foundation? What is it that holds up the edifice of our being a Mishkan in our lives? Saying a hundred brachos every day. A hundred brachos a day. So those who are part of our Emunashir on Wednesday mornings, we've spent the last several weeks learning a piece by Revolba on Birchas Anani and based on this Gemara. That Hashem says, Ma Hashem Moshe quotes, What does God want from you? The Chazal rabbis say, Ma, don't read it, Ma, what? Elamea. You know what He wants from us? He wants us to check in a hundred times a day. A hundred times a day. He wants us to stop. You're cutting a business deal, you're doing surgery, you're making a case in the courtroom, you're cooking in the kitchen, you're working out at the gym, you're shopping in the supermarket, you're driving your child to soccer. A hundred times a day. Stop. In a world of confusion, in a world in which we can't see transparently that Hashem is there, Hashem says, stop. And a hundred times a day, make a bid for connection. A hundred times a day, remind me and remind yourself that you know that I'm here. A hundred times a day, talk to me. A hundred times a day, show me you're listening to me. Let me talk to you. A hundred times a day, stop. We have an obligation, just like the Fitbit, the Apple Watch, you count your 10,000 steps a day, and the American Cardiac or Medical Association, whoever, whomever got in a room and figured out you need 10,000 steps a day, and people walk around their living room all night long <laughs> until they can have the big simchen fabrengen of their wrist going crazy. The thing goes off and it makes fireworks and it makes a whole, a whole tish on your wrist, a whole fabrengen, a simcha. So you walk around till you get to the 10,000th step. Imagine if we can invent, I want to, I don't know how to do it, if anyone can. Imagine if we invented 100 brachas a day, it counted. Ashiyatzer, good. I made a shahaka on my coffee, good. I said Shimon Esrei three times a day. Cut off uh, a lot, 57 brachas in, not more than halfway there. Imagine, imagine it, and then at the end of the day, you hit your 100th bracha, ooh, a celebration of simcha, what a party. Revolba, what we're studying on Wednesdays, you could listen to all, next Wednesday's our 100th Amunashir. We're making a big party. In fact, we're going to have a whole breakfast, and each food will have printed next to it the bracha, and the reminder of the kavana, and to say it slowly, and we're going to try to make 100 brachas at breakfast. There are a hundred brachas during the day. So, if you listen to that Amunashir, what Revolva says, he talks about, why does Mashem Lokech Hashomach a hundred times a day? If you get through a day and you concentrate it on ten out of the hundred, ten percent, you'll be a different person by the end of that day. Your sense of appreciation, your gratitude, your recognition, your relationship with Hashem will entirely be enhanced. So it says the Chidusha Arim, based on this Balaturim, the Adanim were the sockets. They held everything up. They were the foundation. What is the foundation of the socket? What holds everything up that we're doing? Making a hundred brachas a day. 
You might be keeping kosher, you're keeping Shabbos, you're paying enormous day school tuition. We're doing everything. But if you don't say the brachas, and you're stealing from Hashem, you're not saying please and thank you, you're not acknowledging all that we have is from Him, then the foundation is not there. Everything's going to fall down. The Adanim, they were a hundred, because there are a hundred brachas. And the, and the Chidush Arim says, they're called Adanim, like the word Adon. Why? Because Adanim means a master. A hundred brachas, we become aware that Hashem is the master of the universe. So I'm in the middle of a big business deal, and I'm about to cut a million dollar deal, but I want to make a shahakal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a toast to the deal that I just made. So we just cut the deal of the century, and I'm going to stand to make a billion dollars, so we're going to make a l'chaim. But I, as an observant Jew, as awkward as the moment might be, I have to say to this person with whom I've made this business deal, just give me one millisecond before we toast, I have to thank God for this scotch. He says, scotch? Scotch costs $60. We just made a billion dollars. Thanking him for the scotch? Yeah, I thank God for everything that happens because the scotch is not just scotch. This glass of scotch really had to be, somebody had to plow a field and plant barley and harvest the barley and then know how you turn barley into scotch, which I have no idea. It has to ferment or it has to, I don't even know, no clue what happens. And you go from barley to this fine, single malt, aged, delicious, smoothest silk and it went into a fancy bottle, and the bottle was put into an arm kodesh, and, and, then, and then that had to be packaged, and a thing on top of it, and it was transported, and I was able to get access, and I bought it, and there's only a few of them, and my bracha shakol niyebivro, that everything in this universe, the ambiance, this office, this conference table, this conversation, this negotiation, this deal, the shahakol is not just on the scotch, I'm going to say, the shahakol is on a field, and it's on barley, and it's on a, a, on a barrel, in which scotch ages, and it's on the packaging and the bottling, and it's on the truck driver who drove the bottle to be to my liquor store, and it's on the person who picked it up, and, and it's in my cabinet, and it's on the glass that I'm going to drink it from, and it's on you, and the deal that we've been able to cut, and the atmosphere shock called that everything. So yeah, give me one millisecond, because that's all it takes to make a shahakol on this scotch. On this scotch. Shahakol. And you know what that does for you, says the, says the Chidush Arim. The Adanim, the Adon Kol. You realize, Shakol Niyabidvaro, this billion dollar deal, it was my initiative, and it was my creativity, and it was my competency, and it was my. I deserve credit, I'm proud, I'm proud I cut this deal. But this deal never would have been possible, and the deal would never be successful if not for the Adanim, if not for the Adon, if not for Hashem, who's the master of everything. So the Shahakol I'm making on the scotch of the Lachayim is not a Shahakol on a scotch. It's a shahakal on everything that's led to this moment. Every time we drink, we eat, we go to the bathroom, we eliminate every bracha we say a hundred times a day, we stop and we realize. I'm at the gym and I just worked out and I'm going to make a on that bottle of water as the schwitz is pouring out of me and I realize, you know, the fact that I didn't just pull or tear or break something, shahakal nebifarov. I have a gym and I can afford to go and I have the time to go and I have the ability to go and I didn't just injure myself. Shahakal, wow. Shem that word, as we've been learning on Wednesday mornings, Baruch Atah Hashem, the word Baruch, blessed are you God. You've been saying it a hundred times a day for some of you a few years. A hundred times a day. What are the words, Baruch, blessed are you God? Are we giving God a bracha? God needs a bracha from us? What are you going to give God a bracha for? Gezunt nachas parnasa. What's the bracha you're going to give Hashem? It doesn't mean you're giving God a bracha. Baruch Atah Hashem means, Hashem, you are the makor ha-bracha. You are the source of all bracha. So right now I'm saying a shahakol on the, on the water at the gym, but every time I utter the words, Baruch Hashem, it's not blessed are you God, but it's you God who bring blessing. 
You are the makor bracha. You are the source of all bracha. The word bracha, like brecha, means a stream, a flow. All blessing flows from you. Whatever I define as blessing in my life, health, happiness, joy, children, pride, pleasure, material, spiritual, whatever I define as good, as pleasurable, as bracha, it's all from you. You are the makor bracha. It's a brecha. It all flows from you. So says the Chidusha Arim, based on this Balaturim, these adanim, these sockets, the foundation, that which holds up our whole life, and I think it fits perfectly, like a socket should, with Rav Shechter's insight about Galos and Geula. If we want Hashras Hashkina, if we want to go from exile to redemption in our lives, then make a hundred blessings a day. Exile is living your life forgetting there's a God. I cut the business deal. I worked out at the gym. I'm drinking the water. I earned this house and car. I forged this family. That's exile. Thinking it's all about you. Either taking the credit with arrogance or being crippled by anxiety and fear. What will be? What's going to happen? And I, I don't know and I'm so worried. When you cut God out of the equation, you're in exile. And when you invite God in and you live with Amuna and you realize, relax. Everything's going to happen the way it's meant to be by definition. And my life is made up of different chapters, different journeys. Masa Ehem. I'm on different journeys. But if I'm pledged to be a, a, a conduit of Shechina, if Veshachanti Besocham, if Bilvavi Mishkan Evne, if I'm a walking base on Mikdash, a vehicle for godliness, and I earn the cloud and the pillar of fire by making a hundred brachas a day, I invite God to dwell with me and protect me, I have nothing to worry about. Then wherever I go and however I journey, it's what's meant to be, and it'll take me to the destination that I'm meant to be at. So when you're in exile, you're arrogant or you're crippled by anxiety. And when you're in redemption, you've invited God in, He has a shechina betachtonam, we're a vehicle of shechina b'shechanti b'shechom, then I have, no, I have no reason to worry or be jealous or be angry or give anyone an ayinara or get an ayinara. I just live my life with gratitude and appreciation and humility. And how do I get there from exile to redemption? With the adanim, with these sockets. The foundation of getting there is a hundred brachas a day. Meya brachas b'chol yom. A hundred times to interrupt their day and say, oh, Ribbono Shalom, this hako, everything, it's all you. That it's all you, and thank you for absolutely everything that I, everything that I have. I wanted to get into Rav Hirsch. The Big Day Kuhuna had shatnas. Why would the Big Day Kuhuna have shatnas? Shatnas is all about, you're not allowed to mix things together. We have to recognize the uniqueness, the distinctiveness of each thing separately. You're not allowed to have shatnas. And yet the Big Day Kuhuna, Dafka had shatnas. Why would the Begadim of the Kohen, Dafka have shatnas? Remember that for Parshas Pekudei 2020. Why would the Begadim of the Kahuna Dafka have Shatnez? And it relates a little bit to Purim. The Begadim of the Kahuna had Shatnez. We're told that Mordechai wore Tchelas. Anyway, we'll pick it up next year. <laughs> All right, have a good day, everybody.